1: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Senior Producer Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, we're dipping back into the archive to 2021 and a discussion about how the voices of women have been marginalized throughout history. In 2021, the Cliveden Literary Festival gathered speakers to discuss how narratives shaped by women deserve more amplification among historians. They also talked about how redressing the balance between genders to allow a more representative and accurate account of the past to come to light is not a simple task. The military historian Saul David was joined by historian Haley Rubenhold, broadcaster and history buff Dan Jones, and historical writer Natalie Livingstone to discuss the issue. Here's Saul with more.
2: Let's kick off with the discussion. Great men, forgotten women. Well, we were all having a chat about this, and we, we could, of course, uh, go down the traditional route of just saying why on earth have women been so marginalized by history. As indeed they had been, probably not so much anymore. We're going to widen the discussion out a little bit further um, to really asking the question what is history all about, actually? I mean, I write military history, and you would have thought, well, of course, military history, generally speaking, Apart from the odd martial uh, female character, uh, Elizabeth I, the Amazons, uh, the Rani of Jansi, who I wrote about in, one, in my book, The Indian Mutiny, my, my stories have really been about men fighting wars. But I think my best books actually have been about war more generally. So it's not just about the fighting, it's been about the impact on society. And I mentioned the Indian Mutiny book. One of the things that attracted me to writing the story of the Indian Mutiny, the Great Rebellion of 1857 in India, was the, uh, the sense that it wasn't just a fight between soldiers. This was a whole society, that is, British Indian society caught up, and also the Indian civilians themselves. I mean, it's, no one's ever done the, the correct figures on how many people died in that conflict, but it was at least a million, and it was possibly more. And the vast majority of those uh, casualties would have been civilian casualties. So this is like a kind of Second World War horror show. Now, if you move on from that story, and I, I briefly mentioned the Rani of Jhansi. I mean, one of the great heroes in British Indian history, one of the, the four uh, great heroes of the, uh, of the so-called War of Independence, um, which is how the Indian mutiny is remembered today in India, is the Rani of Jhansi. You'll see statues to the Rani all over India. She certainly hasn't been forgotten by history. Now, move on to a more recent book of mine, uh, Crucible of Hell, which is my last book. I did promise I wasn't going to talk about my books,
3: didn't
2: I? Uh, I I have to apologise, but it's sort of relevant to the discussion. One of the the things that, again, I found completely compelling about the, the information and the evidence in that book was the Uh, the sense that this was an island in which the whole community was caught up in the fighting. So there were as many sources that dealt with the civilians on Okinawa, almost the final battle of the uh, the Second World War, as there were the soldiers, the Japanese and and the American servicemen. And also, interestingly enough, I found a number of wonderful sources dealing with the wives of the kamikaze pilots, for example. What were they thinking? You know, how did they take their leave of these men as they went off to war. So their roles in the story were important. And I, I, I'm mentioning that to say that even a military historian has got to a point, certainly over my career, where women are becoming increasingly important in the story. But we'll just move it across, down the line, and, and just a few general observations about great men forgotten women from, from each of us before we widen the subject out. Hallie,
3: I, w- I wanted to just uh, respond to something you were saying about military history. and and. Often I find when I'm, I'm writing books, when I was writing uh, Lady Rosie's Wim, or Scandalous Lady W and I had to do some research into 18th century military encampments and specifically to understand what women were there and what the women of the officers were doing. And it's sometimes very difficult to get a handle on, on the female perspective within military history. And, and that in itself you know, needs really to be redressed and, and rectified. You know, the female experience has, for the most part, been written out unless the women are queens or leaders yeah. of some description. And I mean, but this speaks much uh, to a much larger problem in general, which I think is the fact that we tend to, or we have defined history uh, unquestioningly as the great deeds of great men. And often in this country and in Western history, the great deeds of great of white men as well. And and so when you, when you give that definition to a subject, which is, dare I say, a humanity, you know, a humanity subject, and one thing about the humanities is we know that the humanities are called that because they inform us about the human experience. So why is it we're, focusing so much on the experiences of elite white men, when history should be the story of all of us. It should tell us what it means to be human. It should look at what the general human experience is. And to think of it in the very narrow framework that we have traditionally thought of it in is is incredibly outmoded. So when we broaden it out, I think there's there's room for everybody for everybody's history, not just women, but everyone else.
2: Okay, you're going off message a little bit. because We're going to <laughs> widen it out in a while. But <laughs> I want you to talk a little bit about you, because you very much buck this trend. Let's face it, and and so is Natalie, and we'll come to Natalie in a moment. Um, you've almost always written about women you you, you've written about women who weren't necessarily at the at the top of society in fact in many cases it's the opposite so why did you do that and I I, you seem to be implying you're a bit of an outlier and frankly most people haven't done that
3: well I don't think that's true I think within academia I mean there's a difference between public history and and academic history and what's going on in universities and in universities you know this is this is the bread and butter of historical study are kind of little niche areas that that people drill into and really come to understand. But I actually feel when I've been writing that I want to bring something entirely new to the table. And so I look for entirely new stories. And so, yes, I have written about women in in the Covent Garden Ladies, which was my first book. I looked at the Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies, which were these little guidebooks to prostitutes in the 18th century. And they were short biographies of these women and their lives and how they lived. But through looking through that lens, you learn about so many things that have actually been written out of history. It's the people in the background. And women are the people in the background. For Lady Worsley's whim, You know, I looked at Lady Seymour Seymour Dorothy Worsley and a very very high-profile divorce separation case in the 18th century, but, you know, largely from her perspective and what was going on. And with the five, I looked at the five victims of Jack the Ripper. Um, I think whenever you look at a period in history through somebody else's eyes, and especially through women's eyes, you get a completely different sense of what was going on. Because we get one half And then we can get the other half if we look at women.
2: Dan, um, to what extent has your work um, borne out this great men,
4: forgotten women tag we're, we're wrestling with? Well, I was talking to my American publisher the other day, Penguin Random House in New York, and they said, I'm out of contract at the moment in case anyone's interested. (laughs) And they said, uh, it's a good job, we've published some of your books. I said, why is that? said, because you're a white guy writing about white guys killing white guys and uh, we'd never sign you. No. (laughs) So, um, look, uh, I've got a few remarks. The first thing is that history is a sort of... I'm going to get quite philosophical quite early. History is a sort of therapy for society, right? Mm-hmm. And it reflects the, the way that we look at what happened in the past reflects what we're thinking about ourselves at present. It's also, for books like these, uh, a commercial proposition. It's a business, and so you go with what the audience wants to read. Now, Hallie, I don't quite agree with you that academic history and, and trade history are, are, are different different places on this. Because at the moment, the big drive, <laughs> as I see it uh, across publishing in trade, certainly, and in television, you know, in television drama production, I do a little bit of work, is for the stories of women, the forgotten stories of women. So this is the absolute zeitgeist at the moment. So it's like this is the worst time in publishing history to be a white dude writing books about white dudes slaying white dudes. <laughs> Nevertheless, there are still yes. loads of like, white dudes who wanna read that stuff. So I'm, I'm not totally <laughs> depressed, is what I'm saying. Uh, I'm slightly hedging my bets and, and broadening, no, no, I write medieval history and, and medieval history is a good case study because there were powerful women in the middle ages uh, and it is to some degree possible to write their stories. Uh, it is not as possible as many people who write those stories would have you believe, because it involves stretching evidence to a point at which it barely holds sometimes. However, it is still possible. But you've got to accept that with the middle age, so this book is The sausage fest. Come on. I mean, it's like it's 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 men. It's (laughs) this is the greatest hits of the Middle Ages. And it's almost entirely men. Now, that's not my fault. (laughs) I'm writing about the Middle Ages and I make the Middle Ages a totally patriarchal sort of man driven society. And and I'm being fatuous and flippant, but I'm I'm driving at what I think is a serious point uh, about history at the moment, which is you have to be careful when you're writing history that you don't overimpose what you wish that history had been, mm. or fall into the sort of shrill mode of telling off history for not having matched up to current mm. pieties. And you have to sort of also be honest about what uh, what societies were like. But I think you know we all do that. We're all well, that. We all try to. We then. all try to. I'm, I'm also a sort of pragmatist and a pluralist, and I think that there is there is. We often think that history should be one thing at the moment or should be another thing at the moment. It can be all
1: of these things at the the same time. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things. And it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25 NetSuite turns 25 this year. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Ah,
0: mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy.
2: I mean, I, I have to confess, I went to a rather bizarre event earlier this year run by Al Murray and uh, James Holland, both friends of mine. And it was about a thousand white men, mostly bald, turning <laughs> up to celebrate stories of the Second World War that, generally speaking, were about yeah. British soldiers doing well. Now, I was partly responsible for, you know, for... for whipping up the excitement, so to speak, of, of the crowd there. Because my book, um, I'll just show you it again in case you've forgotten the, the title. Would <laughs> you tell it, us some more about it? Is, is is it's uh, full of those sorts of stories. So I, I'd have to endorse what Dan's saying up to a point. I mean, not up to a point, I am endorsing what Dan's saying. There is room for writing that sort of history. There is a market for it. People want to hear, hear about it. And the other really obvious point that, I'll come to you in a second, Natalie, sorry to sideline you, um, while I, no, no, while I on, like, just riff for a while. <laughs> on, we'll um, I mean the other really obvious point about what, what we write and why we write, and this this sort of informs what, what Dan's just said, is it's really about the sources that are available. We, we love, as historians, rich sources in which mm. you've got, you know, you've got the human detail of people's lives. Now, Halley has has labored long and hard to get that sort of detail from people who are less obvious and more marginalized by society. But the fact is, the reality is, the the real majority of the vast majority of sources come from people who were educated, who generally speaking came from the higher echelons of society. That's why we still have their records today, um, because they did come from a certain uh, strata of society. So you can make inferences and you can rebuild people's lives using other sources. But if you want that human source, that that actual, you know, diary, letter, memory, it is going to come from uh, people. So we're not really talking specifically gender here, but we're partly talking gender, but we're also talking about class, really, um, which I'm sure we'll come on to in a but minute. But if you
3: restrict it to that as your, as, you know, I think the, the big the big mistake that I was, I, what I was told when I was doing my postgraduate work was that, like, oh, well, you know, you can never tell the story of the working classes in this country, the marginalised people, you know, women, because they didn't leave diaries and memoirs. Yeah. Well, that's, a, you know, I mean, yes, that's, that's true. It's a heap of... But it's a heap of old pants, really. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm especially now digitization, I mean what we have to do is really think laterally about how we're going to access these stories and how we're going to start piecing them together. Digitization has been absolutely miraculous for historians because it means that you have access to things like censuses, workhouse uh, ledgers, um, social housing ledgers, you know, parish records and all of these things and you can trace people through these records. And then you can...
2: It, it's still difficult to get the voice, though, isn't it? The it, actual, it, authentic voice people, yes, of what they were it thinking. Is,
3: it is. But what it isn't impossible to do is create an outline of their lives. Yeah. And we may not have, you know, I mean, like Winston Churchill left, you know, tons and tons and tons of, do, of stuff for the Do you think, but, I mean,
2: sorry sorry to interrupt, and I really shouldn't be interrupting. No, 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 you. go ahead. But um, do you think that there, there is a, uh, I don't know, there, there's a there's almost a, an opportunity for us, given the scantiness, if I, if I can use that expression, of the t- type of sources you're talking about in terms of the voice, is there, is there room for maneuver, and did you use it in the five to actually, not write like a novelist, but use a certain amount of inference to, to, to play around with history a little bit more than you would do if the sources were richer well, and more detailed?
3: I did what medievalists do. Yes, wake up, Dan.
4: not we? Waiting for it to get back I mean, to the Middle Ages. The, the thing,
3: thing like is, we, we, you know, often... So, again, when I, when I was doing my postgraduate work, I happened to be in a department in Leeds where there was a big medieval studies department, and I learned from the medievalists about what you do. Is like, you know, you may not have very many documents, but what you may have are, you know, uh, plans of a, of a Cistercian Abbey, and then something that somebody wrote about the Cistercian Abbey, and then somebody's excavated that, and they may have found the remains of somebody who lived there. And you use pieces and other sources to help put together together a bigger picture so here you know we may have another Cistercian Abbey you know that uh, monastery that's you know got all of these records and then you've got this one and so you can say well you know we know this was built at about the same time it would have had a similar experience and we can apply that to other times in history as well and other people whose lives may not be as well documented so there's no reason why we can't do it for the middle ages or you know for ancient Rome or something like that and not do that for more modern
2: periods. I do remember um, Tom Holland telling me years ago, his wonderful book, Rubicon, which I'm sure many people in this room have read, uh, that he, I mean, he was a novelist before. And actually, well, three of us, uh, I don't know about you, Natalie, have you written fiction yet? Are you planning to anytime soon? <laughs> it Maybe is the solution. Not so much, but... <laughs> um, but I remember um, Tom saying to me, actually, you've got to think like a novelist when you're trying to reconstruct ancient Rome, which is why I asked you uh, about The Five and also Dan. You know, would you say that techniques of a novelist come into writing medieval history at
4: all? Uh, a little bit, but I, uh, structurally, and I think that's a different—that's not the conversation we're having at the moment. No. I think uh, um, I don't want to mansplain to you, Hallie what you were actually trying to no, say. You no, know, please. But you're not—not not <laughs> talking about acting like a medievalist. It's more like being like an archaeologist. Yes, but
3: archaeology, medievalists, medievalists, do a lot more. Doc-
4: uh, yes, yes, to, up to a point. There, there is a surprising amount of documents, but I don't want to argue about the middle ages too much. OK, um,
2: so Natalie, your, your, uh, your two books, first very successful, we know the second one's going to be successful because uh, film companies are already circling, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's, it's infuriating <laughs> so to those of us who've been writing books for years, that you? your first two have been optioned, is, is that correct?
5: Yeah, but who knows what's going to happen? I mean, the thing that is amazing, listening to all of you, This is only my second book, so I've got very, very limited experience comparatively. But what did occur to me, and and what I've done is almost diametrically opposed to what you've done. My two books are from the perspective of women of the aristocracy, from the upper class. But what has occurred to me from my experiences of writing Mistresses of Cliveden and The Women of Rothschild are two interesting things. In The Mistresses of Cliveden, the stories um, that I uncovered about these five incredible women they actually had just been hidden as a result of careless archiving, archiving or just laziness, or, you know, men not thinking that the letters of their wives and their sisters and their mothers were important enough. Mm. So they just just never got catalogued and they were never as a priority. So actually delving into these archives and finding out about these forgotten lives and these forgotten stories, and, you know, the stories behind paintings like that, Anna Maria Shrewsbury and Nancy Astor and, and Harriet Dutch and Sutherland in the other room that was That was fantastic. It was a wonderful accident of history to be able to discover it. In my second book the women of Roth, the, the Women of Rothschild, the reason that the women's sources were actually not available was because of a specific exclusion. so um, in, in eighteen twelve when the founding father of the Rothschild dynasty died, he wrote in his will, he basically excluded all women from the bank from the family, and therefore relegated the women of his family to footnotes in history. Mm. So it was a very different process. This was about trying to uncover secrets that had actually been imposed. And it was a kind of fatwa put on mm. the women of the family that their stories didn't count as much as, as, as the men's. Mm. Mm.
2: Okay. Should we um, let's let's widen this out a little bit because I think we're all basically in agreement that um, uh, women have been marginalised, but in my view, less so now. And as I already pointed out, even in military history, there's an attempt to build in all bits of the story. And, and by the way, just to to uh, emphasise the point, I wasn't just talking about women in the story that came from upper classes or maybe even the middle classes. There are still definitely there are sources, uh, certainly from the 20th century, in which you can build a much more rounded picture of how war impacts people from all kinds of societies. One of the, one, one of the things that I've started doing in books now is having a kind of postscript, which, including this one, in which w- what happens to these guys and where do they go afterwards? And a book that's coming out next year is about um, American servicemen who fight in the Pacific. And what happens to them after is almost as interesting as what happens to them during the war, because not a single one of them is untouched and by their experience, maybe not surprisingly, and not a single member of their family is untouched by the experience. And Just to make one last comment before I ask the specific question of the, of the cast, about going back to this book for a second. So that book was published a month ago, and since then I've been contacted by the daughter of one of the key figures in the story, who I didn't know existed, mainly because she lives in France and she's got this wonderful memoir that her father wrote, which I wasn't able to use in this book, sadly, but it will be and some of it will be in the paperback. Anyway, the broader point I'm trying to make is that her life was massively impacted by what he went through in the Second World War. Extraordinary stories amazing bravery but he did not come home unaffected and maybe no one does come home unaffected by war but it's it's the experience it's what happens next that's interesting so her life has been uh, and her relationship with him was materially affected you know massively affected by what he'd gone through and so her lived experience thereafter now is there going to be a massive chapter in the book would there have been a massive chapter in the book no But there is an opportunity to emphasise. uh, So for every guy who went to that event that I was talking about last month, who glorifies to a certain extent in war and particularly Britain's role in war, um, good or bad, you need to understand the consequences as well for, uh, you know, for uh, the generations that come after and the children, uh, the wives. Um, So I think that's that's an important element that that can sneak into military history. Anyway, enough of that. So let's let's move on then. We could talk about a couple of things, but let's just ask the general question, because maybe this will tease out some interesting uh, themes in relation to the marginalization of people and characters in history. So, so what do we think history is for? I mean, Dan's already touched on this, but let's start with you, Halley. I mean, what is history for? What should it be for? I mean, how useful is it for us? Why do we all love history? Is it just stories, great stories? Well,
3: it, fundamentally, history is great stories. Is it, well, it should be. I mean, that's what brings us to history. I think a lot of us who write public history know that often, you know, the way in which you access, uh, which, the way in which people access history is through, you know, great stories. Storytelling. So you know, I mean, I think I came to history through a number of different routes, but one of them was watching period drama. That's the way in which a lot of people come to it, or yeah. reading novels. And then suddenly you want to find out more about it, and then you read nonfiction, and then suddenly you're doing a history degree, and then you're doing another history degree, and that's a weird. It's kind of the gateway drug, you know, these 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 like <laughs> these things that lead you into acad- academia and academic, you know, deep study of history. But history is i mean i think the problem is that that sort of gateway i think is often reliance upon the great deeds of great men, the retelling of the same old stories again. So that very, very narrow definition, as I as I stated before, of, you know, uh, what kings and generals, you know, and some women who were queens and sometimes very powerful mistresses did. And we tell these stories over and over again to the exclusion of almost everything else. And so what happens is that when we, you know, there's this commercial imperative that obviously, you know, when people write books about this stuff, when television programs are made about it, it's often because people have a touch point with that. They, this is what they learned. They learned about the Tudors in school. They learned about the Second World War. They learned about the Victorians. So, you know, let's give people things that they know. But people are interested in, in stories which aren't just rehashed over and over again. So I think we have to completely redefine how we think of history. We have to, you know, if we look at history as stories and stories that tell us something about what it means to be human, rather than, you know, this very, antiquated definition of what history is, which is kind of kings and, you know, what happened in Parliament and, you know, that's all very important, but we need to populate it with other experiences. And that's how we make history more accessible because quite a lot of people regard history. I mean, kids at school and, you know, people, so many people aren't engaged with history. And and the reason why is they don't see like this, well, what does this have to do with me? What does this great statesman and, you know, and the Corn Laws have anything to do with my life today? What does, what, what does this king have anything to do? Why not tell history in a way in which you tell everybody's stories? You start from the bottom up and you learn something about the past, but you learn something about the present, how we got to where we are today. And I think in that sense, we need to redefine history. We need to embrace and encompass more things. Okay, so
2: changes to the curriculum. I mean, that's what you're sort of suggesting. Yeah, I think
3: fundamentally, fundamentally, yeah.
4: Dan, what's your opinion? There is a reason why we tell the same stories over and over again. And it's not just because, like, it's very easy to, to sort of, parody this and say, well, we've just been bad people for so many generations that we've told all these stories over and over again and haven't, haven't woken up to uh, to the current sort of um, progressive pieties of our immediate age. But I think there, there is a purpose to telling these stories over and over and over again. And one of those is, uh, is that society If we think about oral history, for example, with the retelling of the same story over and over and over again before we were a literate society, that's what history was. It was repeating the same old stories so that you created a generational cohesion in society so that people alive now felt that they were part of a broader thing that spanned time as well as space. Okay, so I I think that's the reason we have done it like that up and up until this point. I also understand why we're trying to not do that at the moment, because we are the most selfish and individualistic society uh, probably that has ever existed, mm. completely self-centered, completely obsessed with individual identity, completely obsessed. I mean, but I think some people are obsessed with the, the sort of the deeds and plight of the marginalized because they, that they have a genuine social conscience. I think some people, however, just want to see history being exactly like them mm. and uh, therefore justifying them doing and being whatever the hell they want and and there is no sort of broader sense of I'm connected to society now that's society as it is at the moment and I can't change that uh, alas but so so I I don't think we should necessarily throw all of this out because I think you have to remember a there is a reason for telling this stuff over and over and over again it shouldn't of course be at the exclusion of telling new stories and other stories but I will just sort of speak on behalf of the the bald white man at the military history festival just for a second and say that dude's pretty happy like Uh, he likes this stuff and I tell you what he doesn't like and I sound like Nigel fucking Farage I (laughs) (laughs) realise. Never thought you would, did you? I'm a pretty liberal guy, but I also get frustrated. I feel like Larry David now suddenly (laughs) personas that dude gets pretty annoyed with being ticked off for liking what he likes.
3: But who's ticking him off the like? Well, that nice? I th- well, but I
4: think that no, he, uh, does, he does get ticked. I think he, he feels. No, he okay, let me tell you I how mean, he feels he, he when does he hears get... you uh, saying that we should we should completely rethink history. He feels told off.
3: Why?
2: But why? Because he likes his shit, and it's like, that's but what he's into. why, why he's should that like, have
3: anything to do with him liking his shit? Why? No, because why they, because he feels... Implicit, implicit
2: in what you were saying is there should be less of that. No, I, I never said it. there if, should if, be less of if that. If your but point you is there's room for all of it, of course we well, there's room for all agree all with it. that. Yeah. No-one would disagree with that. OK, all right. Well, yeah. well, yes, we're back to my point, then. OK. I'll
4: have this point. There's room for all of us. Natalie, can I ask you... Yes, please. Say something. Stop the children from fighting. <laughs> like
2: Dan, you're a distinguished um, Cambridge graduate uh, and you did a history degree and you, you performed brilliantly uh, academically at it. Did you feel as an undergraduate that the history you were learning and the lecturers who were teaching you were skewing history in, in a man-centric way, a male-centric way? Did you, did you, ha- did you ever have that feeling?
5: Well, I think first of all, going back to your original point about what history should be, I think that's quite a dangerous way to start researching history or start writing a book. I don't think you can begin a project by thinking what it should be. I think what you've got to do is actually look at the facts and look at the stories. And actually, for me, what I've tried to do is write the stories of humans and the human experience and the individuals so there's no agenda for me it's not about you know where i think they should sit in the in the social spectrum or what, i'm not trying to make a point all i'm trying to do is tell the stories of these people in the most accurate way I possibly can according to their letters according to their diaries so it's really very little of my voice and all of their voice so um, I would never approach a history as a, as a should it's it's what I mm. what I find so that's someone number two you know at, at Cambridge it was just thoroughly wonderful I you know I, I had a, you know I had a wonderful time I had brilliant teachers and I, I don't think You know, it was about the quality of what they were teaching me and the quality of what they were saying and and, and the validity of the arguments. It wasn't really about a male-female skewing or or any... It was just about how fantastic these stories were. And I think that's what history is for me. It just comes down to storytelling. And if it's good storytelling based on... Great facts and reliable sources, and it's beautifully researched. Then, it's, then, it's, then it has as much right to be on the bookshelf as anything else.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally agree.
3: And can I say something in defence of Dan's book as well? Which is, <laughs> which is, which the Bible is. For the white guy. There is a <laughs> reason. <laughs> there is a reason why people watch Game of Thrones. Which I and, like, and I honestly think if I were teaching, you know, if I, if I were teaching, you know, GCSE students, and I said you want to watch the most, you want to watch like the most historically accurate uh, television series about the Middle Ages and about the way people live their lives the middle, the middle, the the mindset of the Middle Ages watch Game of Thrones
2: Is, is that it's fair to say? Because before you answer that Dan one quick comment Because I although want.
3: it's totally fictionalised I want to say that as a disclaimer total and it's, it has nothing to do with the Middle Ages it, it manages to get into that world and um, and I think that it's no coincidence that um, the cover of your book if you want to hold it up again no, 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 You have yeah, to I'll just keep it up for the rest is, of there, There's a direct you know through I mean what I'm saying is that there is a (laughs) There's this idea that, you know, fantastic stories come from real life and that, you know, history is full of these fantastic stories.
2: Hallie, what what Game of Thrones does so brilliantly, as you know and anyone in this room who's seen it will know, is uh, actually the most important and interesting figures in, in that series are women. They are, the, they are the heroes, really, or the heroines of the story. They're not marginalised in the slightest. From, and admittedly, most of them, you know, are vaguely connected to the, to the royal families of these various different dynasties. But I think, I am sure that one of the reasons it's been so successful is you get a proper, you know, gender kind of neutral sense of power and the use of power and the abuse of power. And actually, of course, the best figure in it is Cersei, who's, you know, an absolute <laughs> monster, uh, but she's a woman, and that's okay to say because some women are monsters. and While I'm on that subject, I just want to remind everyone that Margaret Macmillan uh, was asked a question very recently. So Margaret Macmillan, you know, the distinguished Oxford historian, I think. Uh, is, that, is that right? I think she is. Um, An aunt of Dan Snow uh, was asked not the me. other day yeah. if she felt that the world would be a better place if women ran it. In other words, if they were politicians and generals. And, and she said, absolutely not. Women are just as capable of, of the abuse of power and... Being sucked into the whole you know, use and misuse of power as men are. So, with that as an aside, we'll move on really to the last sort of stage. So, does history need a rebrand? We sort of, we've sort of agreed that it does and it doesn't. I mean, you think it needs a rebrand, but we don't want to get rid of all the good
4: stuff. Oh look, I think it's history's in rude health. I mean, I think we do a lot of, of arguing with each other about it and about what it should be, and it usually comes down to, it should be the way I do it. You know, that's what they, <laughs> it usually comes down to, doesn't it? When we have our argument. Every major broadcaster is commis- still commissioning historical documentaries, albeit on slimmer budgets. And, uh, <laughs> history, <laughs> historical historical gr- drama. Right? booming, yeah, yeah. like booming. It, it, you know, there's just this hunger for stories set in, set in recognisable past places. And there's a hunger, certainly on the part of producers, let's, let's put producers and audiences into slightly different boxes, uh, for stories that reflect our modern discussions about the world we're living in through the lens of a historical period setting. like. Throughout the entertainment industry, throughout, you know, which we're sort of part of, throughout the, the more serious kind of non-fiction, literary industry, history is in absolutely rude health. And I think that if it weren't, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. Mm-hmm. No, I, th- I think it's in, it's in great shape. It's in fantastic shape. We're having a, a lovely time, aren't we?
2: Natalie, do you think the, the television interest or, or film interest in your two stories is because it's about great houses and, and aristocracy, or do you think it's about women? I mean, it, you, you might suspect it's the former, it's the kind of Downton Abbey effect, but I might, might be wrong. What, what do yeah. you think?
5: Again, I wouldn't say it's because of great houses or because they're women. I would like to think it's because they're great stories about fascinating human beings yes, and yes. individuals. So I think the danger is to kind of pigeonhole, you know, and say what, you know to, to limit yourself to why something is interesting. And going back to your point, does history need a rebrand? I don't think history needs a rebrand per se, but I think what we have to do as historians and interested people is constantly question the kind of history we're writing, the kind of history we're reading, the kind of history we expect. As long as we keep asking those questions, then I think we're, history will be in rude health. It's when we have that unequivocal acceptance of what we're reading and, and what, we, what we're digesting that we're in trouble.
2: Mm. Yeah. I mean, Dan made the point that um, uh, nothing wrong with these guys, uh, the independent company as they're known, reading what they like. It, it, in an ideal world, we would have a proper breadth of reading, wouldn't we? We'd read a bit of that. We'd read about the five. Why? I mean, yeah.
4: Why? Why tell people what they should like? Like that's what I that's what that's what annoys people. Is being told, "Well, you, you like this, but you should be liking more. You like apples, but you should also like bananas and pears well, but as that's, well." That's, that's it. nobody's nobody's they, telling be, what people like. Well, they they, no, no, are, this no. is this is the, well, this is the tone of discourse <laughs> from the sort of the, the what is often characterised as the the cosy liberal elite. It's. You guys don't like the right thing, and then that's where the populists get in, because they come along you, and say, "You poor people, you've been told by those dreadful Dan. You seem to people. be a little bit prickly about this. Have
2: you had a few comments about your book that set you off?" Actually,
4: on? haven't, because nobody uh, of oh. a sort of you know a cosy liberal elite persuasion would read my books, right? Okay. They that just wouldn't, uh, and I don't, I'm, I'm kind of comfortable with that. I'm, uh, I do have actually cosy liberal metropolitan values yeah. however <laughs> I'm say, I am a <laughs> pragmatist and a realist so let me tell you what Jay-Z says alright the only time Jay-Z will be quoted in, in <laughs> this weekend up Jay-Z says you've got to feed them sugar right you've got to feed them sugar you've got to draw them in with like so in, in Jay-Z's uh, well this was you've got to draw people in with stories of having sold crack in the on the streets and and the gang stories and the money and the cars and stuff and then you can feed the progressive politics and the like yeah. the, the conscious mindset underneath but you smuggle it and you do it that way around that's yeah. that's my trick yeah i'm doing the like the, you know the, the the canonical slightly traditional old-fashioned stuff i did it with, with crusaders l- less than i did this book. Uh, when I did a book about the Crusades a couple of years ago, I thought, man, I just can't do Richard the Lionheart and Saladin <laughs> beefing and like that being the whole... But, th- but if I don't put that in my book about the Crusaders, nobody who reads sort of mainstream medieval history is going to buy it. They're going to think it's some like, oh, no, this is some preachy kind of woke version of the Crusades. I don't want that. Right. So I am triangulating here. Like Tony Blair, <laughs> only not bombing people. Yet. <laughs> Yet. Uh, I will be
5: soon. Um, a couple more minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
4: Shouldn't have up. had two coffees. <laughs> so what I did with Crusaders was put together a traditional-looking, feeling-shaped book about the Crusades, but made sure that all the way through, women's stories were... Hmm. To the four. and each main part was led by the story of a female crusader yeah. but it wasn't like hey i'm gonna bang you over the head with t- tipping this history upside down i was just saying look this was a slightly broader world and you might realize but don't worry richard lionheart and saladin will be along in a minute <laughs> to make you feel safe <laughs> so look this is all oh, i sound very cynical but uh, I, I i believe maybe because i'm i have a sort of commercial mind for this and i do a bit of publishing and i have to send my kids to school and feed them based on the sales of these <laughs> books so i have a, a quite a, a like a a pragmatic <clears throat> approach to it which is you say look here's, here's what the, here's what your audience is actually like mm. let me tell you one more example this year i produced a drama about anne boleyn for channel five Jodie turner smith played anne boleyn mm. oh of course <laughs> Man alive, that was that was great stuff from a commissioning point of view. We had a powerful black woman playing amberlyn. We had a you know brilliant script written by almost entirely produced by a a fantastic female writing team, production team. It looked beautiful, we shot it in budget, Jodie was amazing, the whole thing was great. Ton all we got was abuse. All we got was abuse for, for having slightly tweaked this thing. And the viewing figures were, uh, on the overnights, were slightly worse than my building Britain's canals. <laughs> <laughs> now, we were super happy in the end, I think, because the, like the, so the, the press, the ch- channel had never had press like this for any show ever. Everyone in the business looked at this show and was like, damn, that's amazing. Everyone was writing kind of articles about it, you had the culture wars all over it. The Channel 5 viewer was like, well, this ain't a Yorkshire vet. I mean, <laughs> what? So all I'm saying is I, I think we have to, like, much as we would like to re-engineer history and rebuild it and think about it, <clears throat> You've got to accept that um, societies or uh, audiences are a few paces behind.
3: are extreme examples. No, they're you not know, they're yeah, extreme examples. I, this no, is no, Tuesday no, night, I,
4: nine o'clock on what, Channel Five. What? I'm,
3: what? Well, not yeah, many okay. Do realise okay, that, okay, but, unfortunately? But, well, yeah, but I mean, everything can't be divided into a kind of culture war. That this is like, if somebody wants something different, then that means that what we used to have is now under threat. This isn't the case? It's about yeah, but thinking H-Hally, about Holly.
4: But a minute ago, you were saying we've got to rethink history yeah, entirely, well, we, rebuild it from the ground up. No,
3: I said we have to rethink what history is. If we include, I mean, if you think about the fact that, you know, history was literally defined, you know, as a subject that uh, white aristocratic men should study in order to be good leaders, well, how is that applicable? What I'm talking about is getting people interested in history. And one of the things we have yeah. to think about is, you know, who, who you know, it's great to have a room full of people, but there are a lot of people who, you know, there's a reason why we're not in the bigger tent. You know, we know, we know, everybody should know that Dan and I are actually good friends and we go back a long way. And Sol and I are very good friends. So we go back a long way. we um, And, and we're well, always. <laughs> Dead. Um, so, but, but I mean, we know that history can be a hard sell. Because, you know, the first thing, I mean, people have said to me, what relevance does that have in my life today? And that's the hurdle we have to get over. But... Isn't that the
5: job of the historian that yes. to make it relevant exactly. regardless of what the story is. It doesn't it, regardless of where in society that person is, the yeah. subject is, it has to be relevant because it's about the human Absolutely. condition ultimately. So it's, it's, about it's a failing vision. with us. If we if we are unable to make people relate to what we're writing, yeah. that is, is something that you know yeah. we as storytellers need to investigate. Yeah, you're exactly
2: right. You need to move people. Now, um, I, I would love to continue this. And I, I tweeted out I thought this conversation might get heated, and that was the that was joke, actually. Because <laughs> we're all good friends. It's on you, man. But uh, so actually, it has, it has been a lot more combative and, and all the more interesting um, than I expected. OK, so I think we're going to end it there. Yeah. yeah. OK, we'll end it there. So thank you so much. Just if you could all give a round of applause to the uh, wonderful panel.
1: Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse our 20 years of back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then just head over to intelligencesquared.com.